The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. Michelle Sautel joins me on this episode of Noggins and Neurons. She is a certified neurologic clinical specialist in physical therapy who has been working with people who have neurological disorders for over 14 years. Michelle recently obtained her PhD and her research focuses on biomechanics, movement analysis following stroke. She taught neurological and biomechanical interventions to physical therapy students at the University of St. Augustine for Health Sciences in Austin, Texas for many years, and more recently signed on as core faculty in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program at Tufts University. Michelle is the Stroke Special Interest Group Secretary for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. There, she is working on creating a patient corner where stroke survivors can interact with a physical therapist. Michelle had a subarachnoid hemorrhage in 2014. In our talk, she shares her experience of having a stroke and how she treats the residual headaches, and it's not through traditional Western medicine ways. We also talk about the buttocks, the role it plays in the sit-to-stand motion, standing balance, and so much more. I hope you enjoy, and now, welcome Michelle. Thank you for joining me tonight. This is a Friday night. That's what we're doing for fun. And uh, thank you. For- <laughs> I know, right? 
So thank you for joining me. And you have an interesting story and a lot to share. So I'm going to let you start where you want to start. And I probably will have some questions throughout this. That sounds great. No, thank you so much, Deborah, for having me. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to tell my story in hopes that maybe it helps others or resonates with others or, you know, kind of sparks some conversation. So, awesome. um, well, so I guess a little bit about myself, first of all, I am a physical therapist primarily. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm an assistant professor at Tufts university. So at the, for the doctor of physical therapy program. And, um, so I've been teaching in the neurologic physical therapy curriculum for, um, for quite a while prior to this, I was at a different institution and taught for about eight years and uh, actually just started this job in January. Whoa. Congratulations. Thank you. So it's been great so far. We're just developing the curriculum right now, but, uh, you know, I've been a neurologic physical therapist for about 15 years and, you know, primarily working with individuals, you know, of all, you know, all individuals who've had a neurologic movement disorder of any sort, but mostly with people who've had a stroke or spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, uh, Parkinson's disease, things like that. And, and I love it. You know, I love everything about the brain and the spinal cord. It's just fascinating to me. I call myself a neuro nerd, which I'm sure all of us are, right? I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It is fascinating. Absolutely. I just, I think the brain is, is capable of so much that I feel like we're not, we're not giving it as much credit as I feel like it deserves. So I agree. And, but I think that's changing. I agree with you. I definitely agree with you. There's so much out there now that, you know, it's exciting. It's definitely something to to learn. I mean, as our nerds, our nerdiness comes through, right? There's so much more to learn about it. <laughs> um, but so I, I, having been within, you know, the neurologic realm and everything like that, um, I guess my story kind of gets a little interesting when um, I was working out one time and I had been, you know, I've been an athlete pretty much my entire life you know, so working out was not a big deal for me. I've always been of, you know, I would say fairly healthy individual, at least I thought so. We'll get into that later. But I, you know, I, I was working out upstairs one day and I was going down to do some pushups and I, you know, I stood up and I had a really bad headache mm -hmm. and I said, oh, okay, well, I'm just going to work it out. It's going to be fine. You know, I'm used to having a headache and it just kind of passing. Um, well, it didn't pass and uh, it started to get worse. So I stopped my workout, got my water, you know, I laid down for a little bit and started to feel a little nauseous and uh, my headache just got worse. So I took an Advil in hindsight, not the best idea for me to do, <laughs> but I didn't even associate, you know, anything really severe, but I took the Advil and it got much worse. And then I started to feel like I couldn't reach the pain. I couldn't touch the pain. I felt like I kind of wanted to rip, this is going to sound pretty morbid, but I wanted to rip the back of my skull open just so I could just reach the pain and take it out. It wasn't one of those, let me massage my head. You know, I've never had migraines before. So part of me was like, well, maybe it's just a migraine. But unfortunately with my background, being that it's 
the worst headache I've ever had. I was like, Ooh, okay. So I think I need to go to the emergency room. So, so I had my husband drive me there and sure enough, they found a bleed in, you know, they called it a, I actually had to look it up too. Cause I was like, I've never even heard of this. Uh, it was a non-aneurysmal perimesencephalic subarachnoid hemorrhage. Oh my goodness. So I know I was like, Oh goodness. I've never even heard of something like that. And that's what I ultimately was diagnosed with. But in the meantime, of course they said, well, we found a bleed. We need to go and, you know, do another, some more workup basically so I had to be transferred to a different hospital and just, you know, go ahead and do the cerebral angiogram and all of that jazz just to see, you know, if it was an aneurysm, because that was the suspected outcome and it was not, or they couldn't find anything. So, so that was interesting. And I feel like I might be a case study somewhere because <laughs> it's, it was just very strange. <laughs> yeah. So maybe we should explain what an aneurysm is for our listeners who don't know. Absolutely. So, you know, a stroke can occur with two different mechanisms, right? So you can either have a blockage within the brain uh, or in vessels in the brain, or you can have, you know, just kind of a pocket within a vessel that can burst. And then that would cause essentially bleeding within the brain. So those are two mechanisms that would, you know, occlude blood flow and all of that kind of stuff to certain areas and regions in the brain. And so the aneurysm, you know, if it is there, there might, you know, we need to see if there, if it had ruptured or if it was just a small rupture, if there are multiple and things like that in order to know kind of how to proceed. Yeah. So it's like the vessel wall becomes weakened and eventually breaks open, Exactly. but that's not what happened with you. That is not evidently. They still don't really know. And they attribute it to a small capillary. So it wasn't necessarily an aneurysm, but they're saying maybe it was a small vessel capillary that was weakened and just ruptured a little bit. So so then blood spills out into areas of the brain where it's not supposed to be. Exactly. And that's what causes a lot of the pain that you have. It causes any of the other, you know, with severe strokes, right? It causes difficulty potentially depending on where it is, of course, you know, with movement or speech or swallowing or, you know, things like that. So, but in my case, I did not have those types of subsequent problems, which I'm very, very fortunate. So, you know, part of me is kind of like, well, I'm kind of an imposter stroke. I feel like just because I didn't have those that I've seen with so many of my patients. So I just, I resonate so much more with how difficult it is to have had movement deficits or speech deficits and, and, you know, things like that after having a stroke. So, yeah. How did they end up treating that for you? It's a great question. I was not a very good patient as I feel like many therapists are not. (laughs) I will say that, but the only reason being it's a very standard protocol after a hemorrhage, right? So, you know, they wanted to give me certain medications that I was aware of and my blood pressure before any of the medications was, you know, nineties over 60. That's where kind of, I live, I live very, very low blood pressure. 
And so these medications that they were going to give me were going to be, they're essentially blood pressure meds because usually when you have an aneurysm, right, the pressure is built up within those vessels. And that's one of the reasons why they could burst. So that's the standard protocol, usually with a bleed. But in my case, you know, I kept telling them, if you give me the medicine, I'm not going to be able to get up because my blood pressure will go down so right. So yes, so I was a bad patient and that I was refusing all of the blood pressure meds just because luckily I was in that profession that I knew what it, what would happen to me if I had taken them. Yeah. So I would say that you were actually a good patient advocate, self-advocate. I agree with the self-advocacy. Yes. yes. <laughs> but, but I'm sure it was a little, you know, difficult sometimes for, for those, cause they did have to come in every certain four hours and tell me the medication and I had to refuse it every four oh hours. Oh my goodness. All because of a protocol. Correct. At least that was what I was aware of because they would come in. I mean, I don't know if it was four, six or eight hours. They, they came in regularly and would just say, here's your medicine. And I would have to refuse it so that they, you know, the documentation would be there and mm -hmm. everything. So no coiling or anything like that? No. Oh. So they did the angiogram and they couldn't find anything. Um, which was great news, but, um, you know, cause of course in the interim, that's exactly what I'm thinking. They're going to have to coil. I might have a, you know, when we say coiling, right. They're basically kind of tying off that little balloon of the aneurysm so that, you know, that, that it's not going to, um, the pressure won't build. So it will rupture essentially. Yeah. Right? So no, I didn't have to have any of that. It was terrifying enough because I thought I was. Mm -hmm. So, um, but, but no, I did have after, you know, the blood, then the blood migrated down. And so I had the meningeal irritation mm. associated with it, which was really, really, um, it was interesting actually. I mean, I kind of look at everything as a really interesting learning opportunity that was happening within my own body. So at the time, it, it's incredibly painful, <laughs> but yeah, well, you know, I always think about the inside of our body and how small the spaces are. So when there's a fluid that's someplace where it isn't typically, it's, it makes sense that it would cause pain. Exactly. Yes. And so with that, so with the meningeal irritation basically. So the blood was kind of going down into the space between my spinal cord and, you know, I would try to bend my neck and it was a classic sign. It was like shooting. It felt like I was being electrocuted every single time I moved my neck. And I, I, at the time I couldn't put two and two together thinking, man, why, I didn't have any neck problems. Why do I have this? And, uh, even the physician was like, I don't really know. Let's do a CT you know, let's do an MRI. And so we did it. And sure enough, the, and then it, it triggered, oh, of course, that's, <laughs> of course, that makes complete sense. So yeah, that's kind of my story with, with what happened. As far as medications, I am not a medication person. So I refused much of the meds that were provided. In the beginning, when I had a lot of the pain, I did ask for pain meds because it was excruciating headache pain. Uh, you know, of course they asked the standard one to 10 and I was like, well, I'm in the ER. So it's a 10. Yeah. <laughs> I need, I need some meds. <laughs> yeah. And that is usually what people say. It's the worst headache they've ever had 
in their life when that happens. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, a lot of people have migraines that are very similar, you know, in severity. And so I had never had that before. So I was, it was a bit of a toss up, but you know, you, you end up having some gut instinct after you've been around it for just a little while, <laughs> like hearing other stories. Yeah. So that was wise that you got yourself to the emergency room and, and treated. So how long were you in the hospital for then? I was in the hospital for six days and I just, it was, it was kind of surreal actually I, going through. So I went through physical therapy eval and I went through an OT eval and a speech eval How'd and they everything. Do? So they did great. Oh, <laughs> it's funny. The PT came in and she said, do you need me? I said, no, <laughs> I'm fine. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it was nice to see the speech of Al, you know, and I wanted to make sure, especially with that, that there wasn't any other issues or anything. And there wasn't, I did the swallow study and stuff, but, um, but yeah, and OT was wonderful. That's <laughs> the good. same kind of thing. They're like, I think you're fine. I was like, I think I'm okay, but you're welcome to do an eval if we need to. <laughs> so, yeah. And you know um, where to get help yeah. if you need it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, after after the, um, the stay at the hospital, it was a little nerve wracking to go home because I wasn't myself. So I didn't have, though I didn't have movement deficits or speech deficits or swallowing or anything. I did have a fatigue factor. I could not walk very far without being exhausted. And, uh, I'm used to running, you know, I was used to running miles beforehand and also I had a bit of a memory issue and part of me chalks it up to at the time having a two-year-old and a, you know, a, <laughs> a four-year-old, but, but in reality, it was one of those things where I couldn't remember what I was going to do multiple times throughout the day. I would go to the fridge and then I would forget why I was at the fridge or I would go, you know, into the room. What did I need to do? Or what was I trying to look for? So that's one deficit that I noticed. And, and, and I'm not sure again, if it's just being a mom, but it wasn't that significant to me beforehand. So did that end up resolving? Um, I hope so. Again, I'm, I'm still a working mom and a full-time, <laughs> so I don't know, <laughs> but, but no, the fatigue resolved, but it took a while. So when I got back home, I tried to take my dog for a walk and I made it out the door and then right back in because I, it's, I couldn't catch my breath and, and you know, I could barely walk to a neighbor's house, you know, so it took a good four months, even for the fact that I, I didn't have any really residual deficits other than that and the memory issues. So honestly, you know, when I say that it's a good, it's, it's an, it was a learning experience for me. It was so helpful when I went to treat patients because at least I could resonate with them on the fatigue aspect and the, and the headache aspect and the memory aspects of things and feeling just not yourself. Right. Um, and the sleep, my sleep was not where it should have been either. I couldn't sleep very well. Throughout my hospital stay, there was no sleep. I, I mean, they tried sleeping medication and I just, I finally just started to ask for maybe a, a Benadryl and that was what kind of made me doze off. But, but so when I went back to work in the clinic, I would, you know, if the patient would say, I am exhausted, I would say, okay, I get it, you know, which I feel like 
is difficult to do in healthcare at times. I agree. Mm -hmm. I think that to a degree, we have been taught to maybe not listen to our own bodies or what our patients or clients are reporting to us. And that is something that took me quite a few years to wrap my head around. And I couldn't believe when I was a younger practitioner, I could not believe how deconditioned people with pneumonia would get. And I'm I mean, you, you, you let people have a rest break when they need it, but to watch it, it was, it was not what I thought when I was learning about it in school. And it was nothing I had ever experienced. But I will say, you know, I had COVID this year, last year, and I experienced difficulty walking and breathing, and I'm a healthy person. And I thought, well, Let's just add this to what I now understand better than I understood before. And it makes me appreciate how hard people really are working on the recovery path and how much compassion means to them. I agree. And just having the ability and that's, that's it. You know, anytime we experience things, it's just, it brings this new sense of understanding toward what people are going through, regardless of the diagnosis of their condition. But I agree. I mean, it, it just having a little bit more time and not being rushed is so important in, on so many different levels. And, and listening to people, it's scary. It's scary when you're not yourself. It absolutely is. And to have someone there to listen is, is necessary. It absolutely is necessary. Wow. That's quite the story. It's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's interesting because of course my, my nerdy self, it just made me want to understand why, why, why did this happen? Because they could never give me a reason. Mm-hmm. And I kept having the headaches. So how long did those go on for? Those went on for a few months, uh, about four months or so. And, you know, my neurosurgeon who was wonderful, just, you know, he was like, we'll take Tylenol. So I was taking Tylenol every day for months. And I said, this isn't, this is just a bandaid. I, I need to know why, why, what is going on? What there's gotta be something that I can fix. And then I had my first migraine. Oh no. Oh my goodness. I had never, I have never had that before. And then I remember I was doing the dishes and my kids were, you know, playing in the playroom and, and I, all of a sudden my field of vision just went out and I was like, great. I have MS, you know, I mean, like I'm thinking in my head, like, okay, what else? What, let's just throw it on here. So, so I called my neurosurgeon and he said, well, it's probably a migraine, but we can't get you in to see you. So I said, okay, well, so I called the only other thing I knew what to do is let me call an ophthalmologist, a neuro, you know, a neuro ophthalmologist of some sort. And, uh, luckily I was able to get in same day and was confirmed that yes, it was an ocular migraine that then went into that big old, you know, headache of a migraine. And it's, it was the same question. Okay. So why, what do I, what do I, what have I done or what do I do? And the response was, you're probably going to have these. And I was like, well, (laughs) that doesn't help me. No, (laughs) 
All right. No, no why not? I don't want them. <laughs> so, so I went the Eastern medicine route, actually. And that's kind of the interesting part of my story, I think. I went to an acupuncturist that was right around my area and I had gone, I had done some acupuncture in the past and and I thought it helped. Right. But it wasn't, you know, a, you know, a, a huge guru necessarily of it. I am now. So that's kind of where things shift because she basically, she, she looked at me and I thought it was very interesting the way, so she is an acupuncturist in Chinese herbal medicine. She does all of that. Um, and so she just evaluated me and with some evaluation techniques I had never seen before. So of course, in my Western mind, I was like, this is different. You know, this is not what I'm used to, you know, you almost think it's hokey until you start to understand how the body really works. Exactly. So that was exactly my first thought. Like this is silly but we're going to go through it. And, you know, so she did the, I was really there for the acupuncture and she was actually really there for the Chinese medicine aspect. She was like, we need to, to fix this. And she's, you know, so I said, well, what's the outcome? And she said, well, you need to overhaul your diet first of all. And I said, well, what do you mean? I eat low fat foods. I eat my, you know, I, I exercise all the time. I have a lot of sugar. Yes. And you know, all that, but, but I work out, so I'm okay. You know, I eat lean meats and egg whites and, you know, all the stuff I'm supposed to. She said, yeah, that's not, that's not the diet that I think that you should be having. That's not the nutrition that your body will be needing. And I said, okay. So her first response was you need to get off of refined sugar. And that for me was in incredibly difficult. And at first I said, no, I'm not going to do this. And, you know, so I kind of let it go and uh, had another migraine. Then I went back to her and I said, okay, what do I need to do? I don't want to keep having these. And she said, you need to get off of sugar, cold Turkey, stop all refined sugar. And that for anybody who is a sweet tooth is really hard. (laughs) It's an addiction. It is. Mm -hmm. In fact, I actually read a study and I don't know exactly where it is, but 12 times as addicting as cocaine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because those brain areas light up a lot more than they do with uh, cocaine, which is really, really interesting. It is interesting. And it's, it's a major cause of inflammation in the body. Absolutely. And the brain is part of the body. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so it was difficult. And I did go through withdrawals for about a week. I had a fever. I had chills. I had muscle aches. I was exhausted. I was just crabby. And I was instructed by her that this would happen because my body was essentially detoxing itself from sugar because she had me off all fruits. She said, no fruits, no refined sugar. I need your body to relax. And I was like, okay. So she told me to actually, you know, she said, when it gets too hard, cause you're going to crave it and you're going to want it. I need you to take a spoonful of coconut oil because the fat will help to satiate your body essentially and, and help you in getting over that. So I ended up having to throw away all the sugar in my house so that I could, you know, not go grab some candy <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the meantime. Well, just but one I piece. Did it. 
Right. Exactly. Just one. It's just a little bit. So yeah, but that was really, really difficult. And once I did it for the week and once my, you know, withdrawal symptoms essentially went away, I started to feel better. I still had the cravings by all means. So I would just take my spoons of coconut oil. And for, you know, a good two months, I was off of refined sugars. And then of course it was somebody's birthday party. So I was like, I'm going to have a piece of cake. I'm going to just do it. Oh my, I had the pain right where the bleed was. It was terrifying. I was like, Oh no, I'm sorry. It's going to happen again. So that for me, and, and oddly enough, anytime I have something with sugar that maybe I didn't know about, or maybe I've just, you know, it will happen right in that same area. And it's the, and I don't know again, if it's just a placebo or something, but man, it scares me enough that I don't touch it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, oh my goodness. It's a lot. It is a lot. Um, So did you start to feel more mental clarity? Absolutely. I did, even with just removing the sugar. And so then, of course, I had follow-up visits with my acupuncturist and she said, okay, next step, you need to, we need to do some testing to see what your body is having difficulty with. And so we did that and uh, wheat Mm -hmm. was my trigger. (laughs) As it is for many people. Exactly. (laughs) So I have to ask, so when she did the testing, did she do kinesiology, muscle testing, or did she She have the She did. She did both. So she did the kinesiology muscle testing. And then we looked at the vials of things, you know, which it was so interesting. But by this point, after doing what she, what, what I was told and going through it and starting to see the benefits, I was like, okay, this lady knows what's happening, you know, and I would show her my tongue and she would look at the scallops on my tongue and say, whoop, you, you're having liver trouble or you're having split, you know, so she could kind of go through, um, and, and prescribe the correct herbal medication for me or supplements or whatever, you know, herbs essentially. And so it was, I, I was like, I was, I was in, okay you tell me what we need to do and let's fix this. So she of course found wheat and essentially grains. <laughs> so, so there went all of my bread that I love so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was really hard. Life without bread is hard. It was, it is not anymore. It is perfectly fine. It's amazing. <laughs> it is. It is. It took a while though. The bread takes a while, but if you find, you know, you'll find your alternatives Almond flour has been great and coconut flour. And I've learned to make my own types of breads. Mm -hmm. So, so it, I mean, it's affected me in the best way because I feel better now than I did. And I didn't know that I had these problems, but when I was a child, I used to have a lot of gastrointestinal difficulties, but attributing it to just, you know, Hey, that's how I'm built. But now I, I don't any longer. That's a good feeling too very good feeling. Yeah. And starting to understand your body, I think is something like we, like you had mentioned, right. It's, you need to listen to your body and your body will tell you what's wrong. If I eat something, for example, I used to go, I don't really go out to eat as much anymore because you never know what's hidden there. I think I have three restaurants that I can eat at (laughs) around, 
but no, when I would go out to eat and I would ask, you know, does this have gluten? Does this have soy? Does this have, you know, dairy? Does this have, and they would say, no, 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 no. If I would eat it, I would know. Yep. So within, you know, 30 minutes to an hour, my stomach would tell me, yes, this has gluten or yes, this has soy. You know, it has something in it that that's not good. It's really, really amazing. I have had GI issues most of my life. Well, and I'm doing really well now because I kind of, I followed a path similar to yours. My person is not an acupuncturist. He's a chiropractor, nutritionist, and energy medicine practitioner. But I think my results are similar to yours. And I don't have allergies. I have intolerances. And so I feel it too in my body. But I had a friend years ago who had severe allergies. And we had one restaurant that we could go to and eat so that she wouldn't be ill for days. So, you know, you really start to appreciate food and, and healthy food, good food, and people who understand how food impacts the body. I agree. Absolutely. And, and I feel like too, you know, depending on who you speak with, will agree or disagree, you know, as far as that's concerned. Yeah. And I think a lot more emphasis needs to be put on nutrition because we are what we eat. Yeah. Right. I mean, literally that's, that's exactly the case. I was a sugar bomb beforehand. And, um, like you had mentioned the inflammation, you know, for me, that might've been what caused me to have a bleed in the first mm. place, just the amount of inflammation floating around in my body. So, you know, I think it's important that people are, are aware of that, mm -hmm. you know, within not just the neurologic community, but everywhere. I mean, it's a source of a major amount of, of, you know, problems. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. But of course, being the nerd that I am, I went through and I read a whole bunch of studies and there are so many out there with regard to Parkinson's disease and the effects of nutrition on um, multiple sclerosis and even the effects of nutrition in the microbiome with stroke showing that, you know, there've been studies that have shown that if, you know, certain foods will trigger progression of Parkinson's disease or certain foods with MS, for example, the walls protocol by Terry walls, I don't know if you've read it. It's amazing. I've heard of it, but I don't know where to get it. Yeah. You it. can get it at any Barnes and Noble. Okay. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, it's, or Amazon, I think is where I bought it. It is amazing. And that's essentially the protocol that I follow. It's nice because it has three different protocols. There's a, uh, a walls protocol. There's a walls paleo and a walls paleo plus for those individuals, depending on the severity of your, um, your, your illness, if you will, or of your symptoms. And I just found that to be incredibly interesting. Is that the protocol that there was a, a story that I heard of a woman who had severe MS and she actually was healed through that, eventually was able to ride her bicycle again? Is that the yes, one? Am I... And she's a physician. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Ter Dr. Terry Walls is a physician and she was diagnosed with MS and she went through the standard protocols, uh, pharmacological protocols and all of that and started to realize this isn't really working as well. You know, I, of course it was helpful in some ways, but she kind of got into that same thing that I was like, well, why, why, what can I do to help myself on top of medication if needed and things like that? 
And she was in a motorized wheelchair. That's where she ended up and she had progressed. She went into uh, progressive MS and she started this protocol and this book, and she's been doing some studies with it basically to feed the mitochondria. So the mitochondria within the cells, the powerhouses of the cells in the body. And, and now she's riding her bike. It's phenomenal. Right. It's really, really interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. And I do think it's important for people. Like I know that sometimes before I found my practitioner, I was, I was trying anything. I was desperate because I was just getting sicker and sicker and I wanted to be well and I like living life. So I kind of was like Google searching and trying many yeah. different things. And I do think it's beneficial to find a practitioner and invest in yourself and your health that way, because most of traditional insurance does not cover these types of interventions or these practitioners, but it's well worth it in the end when you start to feel better and get your life back. I 100% agree, right. And just to have that guidance, right? So of knowing what might not be the greatest thing for me and and things. So I, I agree. I think that's, you know, imperative. And, and for people to not necessarily, not discount pharmacological intervention because it's very necessary mm -hmm. in a lot of cases. And, um, and, you know, but just having that nutritional adjunct as well, right? To have just that, you know, something that you can do and empower yourself to improve your state of well-being, I think. Yeah. And it's, di it's different for everybody. It's individualized because we are individualized. Exactly. Nobody is the same. No. Nobody is the same. But it's, it's definitely something to consider with any neurologic injury. Like I've said, there's research out there on Parkinson's, MS, neuroinflammatory disorders, stroke. They're looking a lot. It's a hot topic now at the microbiome and how just amazing it can be and how, you know, that gut brain connection, right? That's our second brain is. is what we're said. Mm -hmm. Oh, is. this is good stuff. Isn't it great? It is great. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I have a question. Mm -hmm. So you started feeling better. I'm curious to know what it was like to get back to work, like to reintegrate into life, because that's kind of a trauma experience that you had. I agree. It was, you know, I would say after about four months when I felt like I could walk down the street and not be huffing and puffing because our job, right, as OTs and PTs, especially I worked in inpatient rehab, and that's my love. I love rehab. I love, you know, my favorite is those, the, the, the individuals that are unfortunately having a lot of movement disorder and need a lot of help just to see how the prognosis and how well they do. It's just amazing. So lots of heavy lifting. But it was, it was scary. It was absolutely scary. And I was kind of put on, you know, within the inpatient rehab setting, I was put on a different caseload than I usually was. Usually I was given most of the individuals with neurologic injury, but in this case, they'd give me one and then they would give me somebody who had had maybe a knee replacement because those are a lot easier from a rehab perspective just to kind of ease me back in. But it was, it was, it was scary and it was not, I wasn't myself anymore. I was fatigued easily and it, and it took quite a while, I'd say a good year 
and even working out just, you know, that was my safe haven. I used to, that's how I would unload stress. I would go for a walk or a run or I'd work out, but I'm no longer running. It's, it was just, and that was kind of it for me at the time I was going to have, uh, we were thinking about a third child, but after an injury like that, you really rethink things. You're like, well, I mean, if something burst when I was doing a push-up, labor is a little worse. So, so yeah, but eventually and with time and with the right nutrition and slowly weeding out things that were not good for my body, I felt like I felt better much better than ever. And after about a year, I could do a push up again. I really could not do anytime I got into that position, the pressure would build. And I just, mm. again, it might've just been fear, but it, it took, it took a little while. Yeah. I don't know. I remember when I started working in the ICU, the nurse manager was training me on some things and he talked to me about our body being sensitive to barometric pressure because we are filled with fluid. And I, I had never thought about it that way before, but our ICU at our hospital was on the top floor. <laughs> like and you, you're looking out these windows and you can see the, the weather changing and, you know, looking at people with these machines attached to them and they're, they're continuously monitoring various pressures in the body. It makes you think about it differently. I agree. I think that's an interesting point to bring up. You know, we are, we're made of water essentially, yeah. right? <laughs> we have a lot of different pressures that have to, um, you know, to go in. And it's funny that you say that actually, since that, you know, going swimming, even just being under the water, it just provides that pressures within the water and it's awkward. It's sometimes it's difficult to breathe. And I found that when I was pregnant, I was like, Oh, I can't go underwater. I can't breathe. <laughs> yes. But you're right. Absolutely. We are, I feel like, you know, as humans constantly, um, exposed to such barometric pressure that we, we don't even think about it. Yeah. Really interesting. As I was editing this episode, I listened to this bit about not being able to breathe underwater. Please know that Michelle and I both know that humans can't breathe underwater. My thought about this aspect of our conversation goes to how the body feels when it's underwater. I can't speak for Michelle, but for me personally, I don't care for the way it feels when the water is up around my chest and neck. I just don't like the pressure. I hope this provides some context around this part of the conversation. And as long as I'm interjecting here, this is a good time to remind you that the podcast membership is open. You can learn more about it at nogginsandneurons.supercast.com. If you're longing for more podcast episodes, and if you enjoy the energy of being part of a community, this membership is for you. Doro and I love the way it feels to interact with people who all share a common passion. We also know that a lot of people are looking for neurological mentorship right now, and this is one way that we can help. In this membership, we answer questions, we talk about topics not released through the regular podcast. Plus, communities are a great way to share your knowledge, your wisdom, your tips and tools with others, while also receiving the same back from them. 
This all happens in our non-recorded Zoom meetings. This is a relaxed atmosphere. It's fun and everyone gets something. If you sign up now, membership is just $5 a month through October 15th, 2022. We'll see you in there. So how long would you say out from the, from the experience that you started to feel more like yourself? Do you feel more like yourself now? Or is, is that still? No, um, it's, I want to say I've changed as a result of it. You know, just my outlook on life and my outlook on things have been different. So I would say I'm a different version of myself. My kids can attest because sadly now they have to adopt the same eating principles. Oh, you mean mother you. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, I let them have a lot more than I do, which is another story in itself. It is so hard with children to have a quote unquote, like a healthy diet because, you know, if they don't go to school, my child actually got made fun of because she didn't have juice and chips in her lunch. And I, you know, I used to give her yogurt, but I would make my yogurt and I would put it in cup and yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. But I, I think I'm a, a different version of myself. So it's, that's a really difficult question. I I've never really gotten back to where I was. I feel like just from that perspective, I always now look at things a little bit differently. Mm. I'd say physically, maybe uh, the year, it took me a good year to be able to feel like, oh, Hey, I can do a push up again. I can, I can jump up and down with my, without my head kind of feeling wonky or awkward or something. And again, whether it was just in my head or if it was a true like inflammatory response that just lingered, I'm not sure, but but it did. It would take me, I used to be able to do all of my workouts without a problem. And then I've taken it down a notch and that's okay. It is. It (laughs) is okay. Well, it's, it's an interesting part of a person's story. I think I'm in a couple of brain injury groups on Facebook and I noticed that many people struggle with knowing who they are following a brain injury. I would imagine that many of the people who speak to that have had much more serious experiences, residual deficits, but it's very hard. It seems to be very hard for people. I could only imagine just having this small, I feel like experience that I had compared to, you know, the patients that I've seen who have had a stroke or a brain injury and who are no longer the version of themselves that they recall and same with caregivers, you know, it is, it's a, it's, that's something that I feel like is often overlooked, especially with anything neurologic, right? Because now you have these caregivers are like, this is not my husband, or this is not my wife. I I don't recognize, like, this is very uncharacteristic and it's, it is, it's a, it's, it's a traumatic experience, but I think one that people can grow from, we just, it just takes time. Mm -hmm. Well, time is not something that we, um, <laughs> I don't know the right way to say this. We seem <laughs> to have an obscure perception of what time is and our society, our culture kind of pushes us to do more, do more, better, faster. And I'm not convinced that's the right way to approach life. 
but I can appreciate the challenges that people face and experience on a recovery path. I agree. I I think that our medical model is such that, you know, we, we need to do this and we need to do it quickly. And, you know, especially within physical therapy and occupational therapy, right. For rehab, they have to participate in three hours for inpatient rehab. And, and sometimes that might not be good for someone. Oh yeah. So it's, it's interesting. And they, I, have you read the book uh, by Jill Bolte Taylor? My Stroke of My Insight. Stroke of Insight. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that book. I love that it book too. It changed the way I practiced. Me too. Absolutely. And it didn't have as much physical therapy stuff in it as I was hoping or thinking it would, but at the it was just enlightening to see because I can be a fast talker. So now I'm when I approach patients, it's okay to give them time to respond and that's necessary for their healing and for them to feel empowered with themselves and know that, Hey, this is going to get better. It's just going to take a little bit more time. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. 100%. I always recommended that book and Pete's book. Yes. So those were my two go-to books for survivors and for family members, caregivers, friends, because it's really important to understand as best we can what a person's experience is. And, you know, caregivers are having an experience too. Absolutely. And, and that, you know, it just, it does need to be recognized from a caregiver perspective. And those books are so helpful because then it just allows them to be, oh, well, that's why my husband or my mother or my, my spouse or my partner is doing this maybe I need to just give more time or maybe I need to just be more patient or, or explain it in a different way or something. So I think that's, those are important lessons. And especially for me as a faculty member, these are important things to impart on students as well. So, um, so I'm, I'm hopeful that students will read those types of books, right. And, and start to to understand that before going out and seeing patients that have these pretty traumatic experiences. Yeah, they are. Yep. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that part of your life. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I'm happy to share. If anybody needs any, if they want to reach out or anything like that, I'm more than happy to listen. I'm trying to do a better job of listening and being patient and all that kind of stuff. So I'm happy to listen to their stories. So I could put your email in the show notes for this episode. Absolutely. That would be great. So kind. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that actually, I'm, I'm the stroke special interest group secretary for the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. And I have been helping out specifically with the, with, the student corner. So putting up things, you know, that would help physical therapy students. But here more recently, we've been interested in adopting a, um, a patient corner, which I'm really excited about, you know, trying to work with individuals, you know, right now with our student corner, we actually have a question and answer type of section, a form where they just fill out, ask a question kind of either anonymously or they can post their email address to it. And then we would then answer that question online. So I'm hoping to do something similar with patients. 
they have a question or if there's a exercise of the week or, you know, is there something that you would want to help with? That's definitely something that we would be interested in and, and, and incorporating or working with you all to do. That sounds interesting. I love that. So you also are a researcher. I am. Yes. Well, I wonder, do you want to share a little bit about that with us? I did take sure. a peek at those posters that you sent me. I need some help with that, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, so I, it, it was a long time coming. I mean, the PhD route, that's a lot. It's a lot. It took me a good seven years to finish it. <laughs> Congratulations so, to you on oh, that one, too, because I always thought that I would get my PhD. But it I went to school part-time for about half of my education. I just got tired. It's exhausting. It really, it's a test of endurance. Mm. It really, really is. I mean, after a good four, I thought I was going to be done in three to four years. Oh, for crying out loud, seven years later. You know, my children are now huge compared to where they were. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry for putting you through this. Yeah, I had a friend um, of mine one time say, do your children still know who you are? <laughs> I know. I know. My goodness. Thankfully, yes. It is. It's it's difficult, right? Actually, it was it was heartbreaking. My children were like, "Well, mommy, so when you're done, will you be able to play with us again?" And I was like, "Oh, oh for crying out loud!" I know. <laughs> Sorry. So now I'm not. But I'm yeah. not a good mother. It just it mm -hmm. makes me it makes you feel awful. But but it's a huge you know accomplishment, mm -hmm. I think. And, and to have the ability now to do research, that was my main reason. Yeah. Um, and oddly enough, the stroke happened right as I was getting started oh, wow. with my schooling. So it was really interesting. Did you have to put any of that off? I didn't. So, well, actually, no, I did. It happened. I had been within a, a different program um, I wasn't working full-time at the time, so I started at a different program, and I had to just make sure and communicate with my professors, oh my goodness, I cannot do anything for a good month. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so sorry. But it actually, it worked out pretty well, and I ended up switching programs because I started a full-time job. So, um, so it worked out. And yeah, so that kind of led me into my research path as well, I think. So mm. most of my research has been within individuals who've had a stroke, specifically looking at the sit-to-stand uh, or the chair-rise task. And I'm not sure if you found the same, but whenever I treat individuals, it, it, it had always been something that just bothered me because we, once we stood up, we could walk fairly well. The individuals could walk okay, but the standing up was so difficult. And so it often occurred that people would discharge home and sit mm -hmm. all day until therapy. And, and, you know, once the, again, once the therapist helped them up then they were able to walk and move around and do things like that. So it started to become a fascinating topic for me as far as why, again, the why, what is the underlying problem? Why can this person not stand up? Is it balance? Is it strength? Is it, you know, things like that. So that's what I, I started to really look into from a research perspective. Why, what is the sit to stand? And I have far to go, but, but with my research in particular, I was looking at the gluteus maximus muscle, which I love that muscle. <laughs> a a lot of people underrated. love that muscle. 
Yes. <laughs> um, but it's actually surprisingly under under investigated within research. That's interesting. It is. Um, so we you know, have three gluteus muscles, right? The gluteus maximus, gluteus mm-hmm. medius, medius and, and the gluteus minimus. Yes. <laughs> yes. We have a lot of gluteuses. Glutei. Glutei. I don't know. <laughs> Glutei. <laughs> um, but absolutely. And, I, and they span such, they're huge muscles, right? So especially the gluteus maximus, it's a very, very large muscle. We should and, tell people where um, it is. We should. It's, it is the bottom muscle, the buttocks. Yeah. So the buttocks muscle, basically. Um, and it's big, right? So that it's a very large muscle mm-hmm. in compared to, you know, other things like even the quadriceps, it's, it's larger mm-hmm. in the hamstrings and things like that in the front and the back of the legs and the thighs. So I started to really look into that muscle in particular. There have been a lot of studies that looked at the quadriceps, which is the muscle right in the front of your thigh. And there have been some research with muscles in the backs of your thighs. So the hamstrings muscles, but the gluteus doesn't, it it wasn't as highly investigated. Hmm. So, which to me, you need your gluteus maximus. You need your buttock muscles in order for you to stand upright. Mm -hmm. That's what basically those muscles are what extend your hips. So they make you stand upright essentially. And they're used in in, you know, great capacity within the sit to stand task itself. So that's one of the prime movers of the, of the task. So I really delved into research there and figuring out, you know, when it's activated and when it's not in individuals who've had a stroke and what my findings from the research that I did were that after a stroke, you actually, you have bilateral involvement. So both legs are actually impaired. One leg is more so, right? It's, it seems that way, but actually in my research, what I noticed was the quadriceps muscles, so the thigh muscle in the front and the hamstrings muscles in the, in the back, there was no significant difference in magnitude. So in how much they activated between legs after you've had a stroke. So they're Mm -hmm. pretty similar, Mm -hmm. but there was a fascinating difference, right? It (laughs) is. And I, before we get into the, Mm -hmm. the butt, (laughs) Can we talk a little bit more about the more involved and less involved side? Because I think no matter what we learn in school, people tend to think that one side is not involved, but Mm -hmm. it is involved. Like it is a whole body experience. I think it's just that the more of a deficit there is on the one side, it takes away from a loss on the other, just because the the difference is so vast. I agree. I agree. And that's one of the, you know, the interesting things that I found with the research, both legs were significantly less active. So when I look at electromyography or EMG is basically where I look at the electrical activity of the muscles. So it's not strength per se, it's just electrical activity because with the brain, all of that is kind of a, a, of a package deal. We have to have our electrical activity has to be appropriate to those muscles in order for them to contract appropriately. So it was really interesting to see that there was a significant decrease in electrical activity of the muscles compared to healthy adults of the same age. On both sides. Um, both sides. Wow both sides. And so what I found was with the gluteus maximus and the hamstring, so the bottom muscle, and then the back of your thigh muscles, 
there wasn't, at least for my studies, there wasn't a significant difference between the sides. So both of them were very weak. Hmm. There was a significant difference between the activation of the quadriceps on the paretic side. So the more involved side was significantly less active, if you will, than the less involved side. But it was only for the quadriceps in my study, which I found very interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. Mm-hmm. And it actually resonated with other articles. Other articles didn't really look at the, like I said, the bottom, the buttock muscles, mm-hmm. but they did look at the quadriceps and the hamstrings and they found similar results that the hamstrings, there wasn't really a difference, but with the quads, there was. Hmm. So the front part of the body and the back part of the body. Mm -hmm. So if both of those are weakened, it's going to be hard to transition from sit to stand. Exactly. Exactly. And I caution about weekend because it's more about just the electrical activation. Oh, so there's a right. And you, I just I know, wrote this down. <laughs> I just wrote this down. But it's, it's, it's straight, so hard. So. I know a lot of people and me included, right? I still sometimes get tripped up. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Nope. It's just electrical activation of the muscles, but you can kind of make a little bit of a you know, it's, it's similar, right? Because if we have decreased electrical activity going to those muscles or, you know, reacting from those muscles, then we're assuming that the force component is probably lower too, but that's not necessarily what my study did, but other studies have shown that strength is decreased as well. So absolutely. So when we're talking about activation, mm-hmm. there must be a time component involved. Yes, absolutely. And so that was the second part of the study that I was looking at. And I found that there was a delay in the onset. So when the muscle fires, there was a delay in the buttocks muscle onset Okay. on the more involved side. So on the side that's most people attribute to the paretic or the weaker side, there's a delay. So it doesn't fire as quickly as the other side does. And that was in my study unique to the gluteus maximus or the buttock muscle, the quadriceps and the hamstrings, they had a relatively similar firing onset, if you will. So, so that's another thing. So that's something that I think is important for people to understand. It's not just about strength. It has a lot to do with the motor control behind it and the timing of our activation as well. So is it correct to think about lag? Like there's a lag, the rest of the body or the other muscles, Mm -hmm. they're ready, Mm -hmm. but the gluteus muscle is not ready. Correct. At least in my studies, (laughs) which is what I've, which is what I've found. Well, if you think about that in terms of actual function, it makes sense that it would be hard then to go from a sitting position to a standing position. Exactly. Exactly. Which is interesting. There have been similar studies that have actually shown similar things to occur with the lower limb muscles too. So the muscles that are in front of your shin and behind your shin and things like that, but those muscles are primarily for stabilization. So you can see how that could lead to balance possible balance deficits and things like that. 
but there's a combination of, of things that are going on that are basically keeping people from being successful with this sit to stand task. And so I think it's interesting to kind of get that comprehensive view so that we as therapists can then be like, okay, well, we need to work on both sides, not just really, really strengthening one necessarily. We need to work on the magnitude or the, the ability for them to fire and for them to fire more rapidly at the same time. Well, good. That leads me to my next question. Okay. So I was looking at your poster. I think I did understand one thing in here. Mm -hmm. You talked about specificity of practice. Mm -hmm. To me, that means we have to practice sit to stand. We have to practice working on speed. You're absolutely right. That was my second study okay. that I looked at. And I actually looked at uh, different speeds of sit to stand. So having people do a normal sit to stand just at their self-selected speed, it is difficult to control speed in a research situation. So it was more of a natural speed. And then I did have them stand as fast as they could to see if I could see muscle activation differences between them. And the interesting part with this was that I, I could, you know, we had more activation, the faster that we had the sit to stand speed. And it's interesting that it started to approximate the activation of the healthy adults during their normal standing. So it seemed as though we were starting to, as we go faster, as we start to train, or I won't say train because we didn't train. We just, I just had them look at just one, or I did force it to stands at a natural speed and then another for it at, at a fast speed. But the faster speed conditions actually started to approximate more of those healthy controls, which is, which is interesting, right? And then we actually saw the lag decrease as well with the, um, the gluteus maximus. So we saw the onset started to happen quicker, which is what we were wanting essentially to see. So that kind of leads me to my hopeful next research project, which will be more of a randomized control trial, looking at speed and looking at the sit to stand task to see if, if I train someone with as fast as possible sit to stand with safety, of course. Mm -hmm. um, is that going to improve? I I'm not sure. Well, it certainly makes you think that it would, especially if there you only did four mm -hmm. typical natural mm -hmm. for them mm -hmm. and four faster speeds, Correct. and you started to see a change Right. Already. So I took an average of those four. Yeah. So I was just looking to see if there was an activation difference between the normal speed and then an activation difference between the faster speed. And so after I took the average into this statistical analysis, there was a significant increase in magnitude. So increase in activation. So I have a question now. Mm -hmm. what, what type of muscle tone did these people who participated in the study have, the stroke survivors, did they have changes in muscle tone? That's a great question. I didn't study that directly, so I couldn't necessarily answer that question. And that was actually one of the limitations of the study. It was difficult to get 
enough participants within my mm. very strict because parameters because these individuals had to be able to stand up on their own, which after a stroke, sometimes that's, that's, that's the whole reason I did the study because they can't. Right. Um, so tone, you know, as far as spasticity and things that were also contributing, I didn't take into consideration just so that I can get enough people with all the other constructs that I had going on. So, so I didn't look at that. But that's something I definitely would like to look at for future trials for training wise, because like you had mentioned the task specificity. So if we, and it's interesting because now when you go into the hospital or you see physical therapists in the beginning, when you've had a stroke, maybe it's okay to go slower, but should we go slow all the time? Probably not. That's kind of what we're starting to see. We need to train them fast, as fast as you can, so that we can build that appropriate activation and onset. That's kind of where the study I think will lead. But again, more research needs to be conducted just to solidify those theories, if you will. Yeah. Well, it certainly makes you start thinking all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think about Pete's neuroplastic model of change, like, and what we know, if you fatigue certain muscles that are getting in the way of the other muscles having the opportunity mm -hmm. to even think about firing. You know, it just makes me think about the impact on, on change that can happen for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Within the right contexts. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, the brain is amazing, you know, it, it, is. it can adapt and and it can change. It just has to be given the right parameters and the right context in order to do so. And of course, there's something to be said about how long it's been and things like that. Mm -hmm. But but I still believe, and it's been shown that the brain is plastic. It can it can modify. It just needs the right um, the right help. <laughs> help opportunities exactly experiences exactly. You know, it's interesting because when you first told us about your research, I was, I didn't know what to think. I really didn't know what to think. But now after we're having this conversation, I see the importance mm -hmm. of understanding this because if people are sitting too much at home because it's hard to get up or it's hard to get down, that is problematic. It's only going to feed into further deconditioning and people want to do the things that they want to do mm -hmm. and some of the things we have to do like go to the bathroom you know if it's really hard to stand up and then get yourself into the bathroom and then sit down like you have to plan your day just to go to the bathroom and most of us just go to the bathroom so i mean that's a lot of that's a lot for for a day it is. It is. And, and it's a lot of time, right? It it's a lot of time yeah. taken out of the day and, and, you know, figuring out how to plan it and who's going to be there in case I fall or, you know, that kind of, it, it is, it's a lot. So, yeah. you know, for me, I guess that's the importance of just the standing up portion. If we can stand, we need to stand. And that's the task specificity. That's the plasticity. We need to do the activity that we're having trouble with so that mm -hmm. we can get better at it. And we need to do it within the parameters that we're supposed to, you know, that, that is 
that we're trying to achieve, I guess, right? Because mm-hmm. if we continue, and that's something that I notice oftentimes, you know, as therapists will say, oh, slow and steady. Not really, right? We need to do things faster. And, the, and it's been actually, there's a lot of research out there on gait, on uh, walking, and how fast walking has been shown to improve walking outcomes and things like that. And so for me, it was like, well, the sit to stand hasn't, you know, people haven't really been delving into that aspect as much. So this high intensity training is definitely interesting and kind of where we all need to go with respect to intervention. Yeah. So maybe just set up a training protocol for sit to stand. Exactly. 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 And there's, you know, there was a study actually by Boyne and colleagues, you know, I can actually, I can provide that article to you if you want, but he did a pilot study and I thought it was interesting. And that's part of where I'd love to kind of go with some of this stuff, but he did a pilot study on high intensity sit to stand training with this device. So it was really safe and patients could kind of do it on their own. And, and it was really neat. And, and it was just a pilot. I think there were only maybe three or four people in it but still saw a, a pretty decent trend and saw some great improvements with this type of just training. Like you said, like develop a protocol and we can start at, you know, maybe a higher level to make it a little easier to do the, the sit to stand and then go lower and, and faster. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That leads me to something else I read in this poster well, I don't know which one this is. It was the second one that showed okay. up for me. Um, but it, it's talking about recovering normal biomechanical patterns of movement. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because I know Pete often said, don't make perfect the enemy of the good. That's true. That's <laughs> so true. Too. how are we supposed to think about this? Because I know we have spoken at length about NDT and the insistence on perfection there and, or normal, I should say, and how that's not necessarily correct. Mm -hmm. But it kind of seems like you're saying that we do need to have a good biomechanical um, movement. You know, it's interesting. I think there's two ways of thought about it too, especially, you know, with a high intensity gate protocols, they're saying, don't worry about it, just walk fast. It doesn't matter what it looks like. I'm kind of in the middle of that. I think we need to worry about a little bit what it's looking like because we don't want the other side to go out. And then we're left with, you know, if we have bad mechanics with it, but having at least a somewhat symmetrical biomechanical profile would help for our muscles again, to get back to where this is where you need to be. This is where we want you to be and, and to get them back to that normal um, normalized movement pattern, I think is helpful. There have been studies that have actually shown that if we increase some, the symmetry within gait, that, uh, it actually decreases their opportunities for balance. So that's something to look into also. It's not just one, one system that we need to, to treat, I guess. Right. But from a biomechanical standpoint, if we can try to get back to the biomechanics and that's something to, to think about, right. And, and we need more studies in order to see if getting back to that normal biomechanics of movement, is that going to improve your outcome or is it better to just, you know, leave well enough alone type of thing. So 
for me as a clinician, I'd say in the very beginning after a stroke, use, do whatever you can activate, whatever you can. I don't care if it looks funny or silly, just get those neurons firing, get those motor units firing so that, so that we can have activity. But then I think it's, it is important to some degree to refine some of that activity and try to really get back to the biomechanical normalcy, I guess, if you can, or toward that normal biomechanical action, if we can, of course. But again, more research. I I would still need a lot more research in order to determine if that's where we should be heading or not. Mm -hmm. So. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And I did like what you were saying about moving towards symmetry so that another part of the body doesn't start becoming problematic Mm -hmm. because that does happen sometimes and that can further limit people's ability to engage in the things that they enjoy doing. Right, exactly. And, you know, I think it's important if, if we use one side, you can get an overuse injury on the side, you know, in the side that's a little bit more or a little less involved per se. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to, to just be cognizant of that so that we don't wear out the other side. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We, we need to keep both sides, especially both of them are, you know, are necessarily are, are impaired after mm-hmm. having at least a stroke is concerned. Right. Yeah. And any other neurologic disease. Yeah. So it is, it's interesting. I think that there've been studies with the sit to stand where if we move our feet back behind us a little bit more, this is more of that NDT type of notion, I think forced use and things um, that you have an increase in muscle activation with that. And so figuring out though, if that muscle activation improvement is going to lead to success with the task, that's something that I think still needs a little bit more refining in the research. Well, I do know that a simple minor tweak in foot positioning can make it more more effective, a sit to stand more effective, it can also hinder it. So if you're not positioned properly, it does play a big role in success, quality of movement, safety, everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I teach my patients, even just an inch of, of skew or asymmetry is going to decrease the amount of use that you're getting out of that leg. So it's that the neuroplastic principle is, you know, use it or lose it. If you don't use it, it's just going to degrade further. It's just like with regular deconditioning. If we sit on our bottom too long, then it's going to be that much harder to get off of it. So honestly, if it comes down to getting up with an awkward biomechanics versus not getting up at all, I'd say just get up. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's always, there's yeah. always a, a, another side to it. I think mm-hmm. I'm hearing uh, moderation. Mm-hmm. I'm hearing, um, um, like, like use common sense mm-hmm. here. And the other thing I'm thinking about is practicing sit to stand is a good thing to do. Yes. It is. It's It's such a good thing. That could be part of somebody's home exercise program. It should be part. It should always be part. And, and a lot of the home exercises that are, that I've seen are squats or leg lifts or something like that. A sit to stand will 
it will activate all of those muscles that are needed, the lower leg muscles, the upper leg, the bottom muscles, everything. And it's in a functional way. So doing it in a task specific environment, it's similar to saying, you know, if I'm, if I'm a volleyball player, I'm not going to go swim and expect to get better at volleyball. I'm, I'm right. going to play volleyball. So if you want to get better at a sit to stand, you need to do the sit to stand. 100 well, That's pretty simple. Yep, exactly. It's so <laughs> funny. I try to teach my, my students that and they're like, I was like, well, what is the best activity? And they think real hard. I'm like, it's a sit to stand. Mm -hmm. It's a sit to stand. If you're trying to work on a sit to stand, it's a sit to stand. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I love the students. <laughs> they always go to like this most oh. creative, obscure thing. And they, sometimes they have a hard time believing that it could be that simple. Yes, I know. It doesn't have to be fancy. It really doesn't no. have to be fancy. <laughs> mm -hmm. No. It, it's literally the activity that you're having trouble with is what you need to do and do more of. Granted, yeah. you know, there might be some strengthening needed to understand how to do it correctly, but for the most part, it's just, it's do what you're having trouble with for sure. Yeah. So that task specific training. Very much so. Do it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> so I have another question. I don't know if it's going to throw us way off here okay. and I can get rid of this if it's, if it's way off topic. But I worked with, um, in addition to working with a lot of people who had strokes and brain injuries, I worked with people who had cardiac issues mm -hmm. and sit to stand can be very difficult. And I'm wondering about endurance, the role of the heart and the lungs and all of this as well. Can you speak to that a little bit or? Um, well, of course, you know, the role of the heart and the lungs are going to be um, integral into any kind of functional activity like this. Um, I think, you know, doing one sit to stand is not going to be as, um, uh, I guess, difficult for, for the cardiovascular system as doing many. And mm -hmm. of course, I think, I mean, again, it's another way to use all of your muscles at the same time. And if you want, if you're having difficulty with cardiovascular, you know, um, systems and, and with sit to stand, then do a bunch of sit to stands, then you're going to, you know, I hate the saying, but you're going to kill two birds with one stone, right? <laughs> <laughs> you get both of them. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, as far as the more, detailed cardiovascular improvements. I can't really speak to that as much, but, um, yeah, I'm quite sick of the sit to stand with how much I've been studying it, but I see how <laughs> I've been I'm doing sorry. this for a long time, but, but it's so, I mean, it's interesting. It's such a great activity. Um, and it can be done safely with a caregiver, as long as you have something in front of you to hold on to things like that. Now I'm not saying everybody go out and do a bunch of sit to stands, um, by yourself because we need to make sure the balance component is huge with it. But, uh, but there are avenues to do stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and to make it easier, you know, we can raise the surface height in order to make it just a smidge easier for people to be successful. And once we've gotten there, then whoops, okay, let's lower it just a little bit. And, and keeping in the back of your head speed, speed is so important with it. Yeah. So adding the speed component. So let's say somebody lives at home and they have one of those chairs that will lift you up a lift chair. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of therapists don't like those, but I do think they have their place. And if this is the case, then measure the height that you're starting at, right? Yep. 
And when that becomes fairly easy for you, maybe it's time to just stay there for a little bit and increase your speed, Mm -hmm. try to get faster at it. So that also, to me, speaks to giving the brain some novelty. It's not the same thing all the time. And so you're giving it that novelty that it needs. And then it's a way of mixing it up. It might sound kind of simple to some people, but I think when movement is a challenge, if we can mix things up in a simple way and give them variety while improving ability, why not be simple with it? It's kind of how I think about it. I am with you. And I think the simplest activities are often the best ones to do, just as long as individuals who do this are are safe about it and and have appropriate balance or things in play. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of nice little tricks that you can do. Speed is huge. And then even just pushing off with maybe one hand instead of two hands, you know, and and putting more of that I guess force component on the legs instead of using the arms, little things. And and it's interesting as you get faster with a sit to stand, you tend to not bend over quite as much. So we tend to have less of a hip flexion component. So we're, you know, as we get faster, we're actually getting, if you think about it, and this is the third study, the pa- I have another one that I'm looking at from a power perspective. So a lot of what we need to work on is power, doing things in a quick, amount of time. And it actually just changes the biomechanics of the sit to stand completely. So you're actually standing upright more quickly. Exactly. Yeah. You're achieving that posture faster. Instead of coming forward, which is interesting because then you're using a little bit of momentum and that will help you a little bit more with success versus if you kind of bend forward and do it slower, you really have to rely on those legs to propel you upward. And if people aren't very strong, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because you're not going fast enough. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. So to me, I hear, I think it's easy to feel a little defeated if it's hard and to start thinking, well, this is all I can do. Why should I bother doing this? But it is what you can do and you can make that better. And I, I mean, I think that's going to help so much of life anyways, definitely beyond just sitting in your chair. Sitting in your chair never helps anything. So I see it improving cardiovascular. Mm -hmm. It's a way of getting some cardiovascular movement, increasing heart rate a little bit. It might not be like the running, but it still is movement Mm -hmm. and it's still beneficial. You're still helping your body from the neuroplastic standpoint. And then you're preventing further decline which a lot of times we don't think about that, but I think that's really important. And and the reason it's in my mind is because I had a friend who had a stroke and she was able to live at home alone. She used a power wheelchair. She was able to transfer from the chair to the, to the toilet or get in and out of bed. But at one point, the agency that was overseeing her care decided that she improved and they wanted to withdraw services from her. And I thought, well, what, who is even thinking about this? Like what professional opinion would even consider something like that? Because a person who's, whose main activity is a transfer, it's highly unlikely that unless significant improvement occurs, that they are going to be that much better over the course of some time mm-hmm. that they would need to remove some services from that person. So 
I just, I think it's important to consider a lifestyle of maintaining what you have and improving if possible. I agree. I agree. And doing things that you can. And, and I read a book once it was called tiny habits. I don't know if you've read it. Oh yes. I have, have heard, yeah. I've not read it, but I, it's I read, a good, yeah, it yeah. Is. it's nice because you know, we think about, Oh, I got to do a sit to stand and I got to do 20 of them a day. Well, you may not meet that, but there are things that you can do to improve your, you know, your functional activity level and to improve your strength. Even if it's just kind of getting toward the edge of your chair and leaning forward and having something there just in case and lifting your bottom up off of the seat, that's going to activate so many muscles at the same time. I mean, even if you just, that's how you start because we can't build ourselves up or if I don't have a lift chair or I can't really, that's something that can help. So there's always, I feel like something that you can do. And again, Here's that nutrition piece, recognizing that both the internal environment and the external environment, you have to have a good internal environment, in my opinion, in order for you to actually be successful with this stuff. So, I mean, I, I just think that people have the ability to help themselves from a functional perspective by doing these small task specific things. And again, you're right. Cardiovascularly, if you do that, I mean, goodness gracious, if I do that 20 times and just kind of, I'm going to start kind of, you know, I'm going to feel taxed and I, right. And I, and I have my movement system isn't impaired necessarily. So, so there are things that we can do and I've seen good improvements with, with this kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. I just think sometimes that I know how we are as humans. Mm -hmm. I know how I have been as a human. And I have found myself in certain times in my life thinking, "Eh, why bother? Like something feels so far out of reach. Why bother? But that's where the tiny habits come in, the the simple shifts, just small shifts. It it makes more sense to to change something small Mm -hmm. over time because you're less likely to get discouraged if you don't have that right that giant outcome that you're looking for right exactly so it's good to have just little changes mm-hmm. and if you can stay consistent with those little changes over a period of a couple of weeks then make it a tiny bit of a bigger change if you can yeah but something that you can handle and that's kind of what the book said just make sure that it's something that that you can handle and don't overdo it don't do 20,000 reps, just do five. Or if every day before you have to go to the restroom or every time you turn the light off, you do a little bit of a, a nudge and that's it. That's a good tiny habit to build. So it is. And it's easier to create a new habit when you pair it with something that you're already doing. I agree. Yeah. Helpful hints. Wow. See, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> how much you could talk about the the importance of the gluteus the maximus gluteus muscles. maximus muscle it's very important <laughs> very important very under yes, underutilized it and it's interesting because as we get older i'm not sure if you've noticed but the gluteus maximus muscle tends to get a little less yes saggy <laughs> a little less uh <laughs> <laughs> I guess we could say. 
right? Because I, yeah. I think a lot of it, we sit on our bottom well, so much, right? And we don't use it. So we need to use our glutes. Well, yeah. You get chair, yes. chair fanny. Exactly. <laughs> Start looking like, like the chair you're exactly. sitting on. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. This was fascinating. It was rich. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. And if there's anything else that I can help with or, you know, I'm happy to. Thank you. Did you know that mirror therapy is an underutilized intervention for stroke recovery, despite scientific evidence demonstrating its efficacy? If you aren't using mirror therapy and would like to learn more about it, check out the presentation, OT and Mirror Therapy, What's Behind the Reflection? Learn more about the science behind this intervention and how to create a clinical protocol for using it now. Go to creativeconceptsot.com slash resource dash hub to learn more. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.